everybody? Morning. All right, if you got your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 28 this morning. Genesis chapter 28, we're moving right along. And uh, the title of our lesson is The Seeker. The Seeker. Now, you know, I don't know if this is true in your life. I think, it was, I think it's true in mine. Actually, I think it's probably true in all uh, the lives of God's children. But God has a way of shaping our lives even before we come to Him. He takes us through situations. Sometimes He teaches us things. He, he positions us. And all of a sudden, one day we come to Him and, and we realize, wow, this... The skill that he taught me or this, that he gave me or this talent that he gave me, I'm able to use it now in a way for his, his glory. I read a, a story one time about a, a seminary professor that kind of uh, illustrates that. He was an unbeliever and he went to college and he had to choose a, uh, uh, a major. Well, he loved to play golf. That's all he cared about. He didn't care about anything else but playing golf. So he picked the major that had all his classes in the morning so he could play golf all afternoon. That was how he picked his major. So he looked at all the classes, and the one that had his classes all in the morning was Greek. So he majored in Greek, and he played golf. And he, if you'd ask him, how, did, how are you going to use this? He said, I don't know. Who cares? I get to play golf. That's all he cared about. Well, of course, one day he gets saved, right? And God puts it on his heart to go to seminary, and he's able to go to seminary, and he eventually becomes head of the Greek department uh, and training other pastors and uh, uh, other uh, professors in the way to use Greek, and he's able to use that for God's glory. Now, I bring that up because I think that's kind of how Jacob's life progresses, right? In fact, think about this. We don't, up to this point, we don't see any evidence of Jacob being a Christian or Jacob being a believer or anything like that. In fact, if you remember in Genesis 27, when he's talking to Isaac, Jacob refers to God as what? Your God. Y'all remember that? He didn't say my God. He says your God gave me uh, success. So I think, I think Jacob is kind of like Saul in the New Testament. He's, a, he's probably a religious guy. He probably, he probably toes the line, but he doesn't really have any evidence uh, of being related to God by uh, faith. But in this chapter today, something is going to change in his life. Just like Saul in the New Testament, he's going to have a vision. He's going to have a, a dream. And this vision is going to change the rest of his life. It's going to change who he is as a, as a person. And we're going to take a look at this um, today. Now, let's take a quick review, if we can. If we all remember in the last chapter, uh, Jacob and Rebekah... Uh, they have deceived Isaac into giving the, the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. Esau finds out about it, of course. He's, he's mad as fire. He wants to kill his, his brother. And so Rebecca has to come up with a plan to, to safeguard her, her son. And so she tells him, hey, I want you to get up and I want you to go to Haran. I want you to go back to Mesopotamia to my brother Laban's house. Okay, and so she goes to Isaac and she tells Isaac, man, I, Jacob, he cannot marry one of these Canaanite women. They're just driving me insane. Esau's wives are. I don't want Jacob to marry like Esau did. And so she kind of plants this seed inside of Jacob of, of Isaac's mind to send Jacob away. And that brings us to today's chapter. And it all begins with a charge. Let's look at uh, Genesis 28, verses 1 through 9. 
Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to the late to Laban, the son of Bethel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Also, all Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not displease or did not please his father's Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. Okay, four things about these nine verses that, that kind of jump out at me. The first one is this. It seems like this is the very first time that either of these brothers have been told that it's not right to marry a Canaanite woman. Now, how do we, how do we know that? Well, we know it from Esau's response. When, when, God, when Isaac tells Jacob, you shall not marry a Canaanite woman, it says this, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. Now, he's been married for years. In fact, He's been married for 37 years. Not for a year, not for two years. The man has been married for 37 years. And this is the first time that his father ever said to him, that's wrong. What you did is wrong. This is the first time that it's it's like, it's the first time it's ever come to his mind that marrying those Canaanite women, those, those pagan women, is displeasing to his father. It's like this is the first time he's noticed that. By the way, notice in that text, if you read it, that he says it wasn't pleasing to his father. He didn't say anything about his mother. In fact, I think Esau has long given up of even thinking that, that Rebekah would love him. She loves Jacob. So he, he, she's, not even, he, she's not even in his thoughts when it comes to pleasing his uh, parents. But he desperately wants the approval of his father, desperately. So what does he do? Well, he figures, well, Jacob is going to Mesopotamia to marry, uh, to marry the uncle on the wife's side. I know what I'll do. I'll go to and marry the, the daughter of an uncle on my father's side. That'll, that'll please my father. I mean, it's really sad when you look at that, isn't it? It's sad that he is so desperate to win the approval of his father that he, he'll go run off and take another wife just to please his father. It has nothing to do with loving anybody or needing a wife or anything like that. He is just desperate to go and please his father. So he figures, okay, well, if, if marrying, uh, marrying the daughter of an uncle pleases my father, then that's what I'll do. And so he goes and marries Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael. And again, she's not a Canaanite. She's of the family of Abraham. So he figures what could be more pleasing to Isaac than this. And again, it's just, in Esau's case, it's always too little, too late. He just always seems to make the right decision at the, at the wrong time. Number two, 
not only is this the first time this charge has been given to either one of these boys, it's very untimely, okay? And again, you can't overlook how late in their life it comes. As I mentioned, well, let's go back. In Genesis 25, 20, we know Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. okay? We know that Esau was 40 years old when he married, when he married the two, uh, uh, the two uh, Hittite women or the two Canaanite women. So it seems like 30s and 40s was about the time then that you got married. And I won't bore you with the details because you have to jump ahead and count backwards, but we know that at this point in their life, they are 77 years old. Okay? Now, Jacob is going to live to be 147, so don't, he's not near death, right? He's kind of, he's, he would be equivalent to a 40 year old today. He's kind of a mid, middle aged man, right? But they are 77 years old, and this is the first time that their father has said, don't marry a Canaanite woman. Now, for, for, for Esau, it's 37 years too late. He should have been told that when he was 40. When he was eyeing those women, his father should have took him aside and said, no, 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 don't, don't do that. And for poor old Jacob, well, come on, it's better late than never, right? I mean, what is this guy, what is he waiting on? He's 77 years old. But coupled with everything else, you can start to see the casual attitude of Isaac toward the spiritual training of his own sons. Let me say it again. I, I, it just seems Isaac has a casual attitude toward the spiritual training of his own sons. It, 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 to him, these matters couldn't have been of great importance or else he would have told them long ago in their lives and not as late and as little um, as he did. Number three, there is something positive in these verses and that is the blessing of, of Jacob. You remember, if you go back into the last chapter, Isaac has blessed Jacob. And he blessed him to eat of the fat of the land, and he blessed him to uh, uh, that his brothers w- would serve him. He blessed him in a lot of ways. But this time, he thought, remember that time he thought he was blessing Esau. This time he knows he's blessing Jacob. Okay, he knows. He, he's looking him right in the eye. He knows it's Jacob. He knows who it is, and he's blessing him. And, the, and, and I want you to look at the blessing, how specific it is. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. So what he's doing now is he's literally passing on the Abrahamic blessing. He's not just saying, hey, your brother's going to serve you and you're going to eat of the fat of the land. He's saying this is the Abrahamic blessing. So it seems like Isaac has at least accepted the fact at this point that Jacob is the heir of the promise, that Jacob um, is the spiritual heir in that family. And his words kind of reflect what he's doing. Number four, and I just want to make this point. We've all watched, we all grew up on television. We've all watched movies and things like that. And movies have kind of conditioned us that when we read a story or watch a story, there's always a good guy and a bad guy, right? You, you kind of just immediately when you watch television or you read a story, you're looking for the who's the who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, right? And the good guy is going to usually win the day and the bad guy usually gets what's coming to him. So when we come to these verses, it's easy for us to pick out, well, hey, Esau's the bad guy and and, and Jacob is the good guy. But we have to remember that those boys were chosen before they were born. 
that they were chosen before they had done anything good or bad. Jacob wasn't chosen because he's this great hero and he's got all these great characteristics and Esau wasn't rejected because he, he was a villain or, and didn't know. It wasn't like that at all. God chose Jacob and he rejected Esau without regards to the deeds of either one of those. And we looked at that in Genesis 25 and, and Romans 9. So Esau is not a man who's being rejected by God because of his actions or because of, of anything else. Romans 3.10 says this, and by the way, this is talking about everybody in here. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, the fact is Esau is no different from you and I. In fact, he's no different from any unbeliever. His heart has not been enlivened and his mind has not been enlightened to respond to spiritual things. He is spiritually dead, right? That, that's, we all were that way at one point. You know, I was thinking the other day, something, today we walk in a place, if you're a believer, where some things are just obvious to you, aren't they? They're just obvious. Well, they weren't always obvious, Right? They weren't always obvious, but one day they were because God made us spiritually alive. He, he shone a light in our heart. He enlightened our mind to be able to see the beauty of Christ, but we didn't always see it. Well, see, Esau is in that state. He's no different from any unbeliever. He's a man who cannot comprehend the love of God, and he's unconvinced of the love of his own father. He fails to grasp spiritual realities, but he's never been taught them by his father either. In fact, we shouldn't look at him as a villain. In fact, I think he really deserves our pity. And so we need to be very careful when we look at Esau that there's no smugness on our part or any sense of superiority when it comes to him. Because let me tell you, except for the grace of God, that is us. Except for the grace of God, we are Esau and not Jacob. And we need to remember that as we go through these chapters. Now, so he leaves, and uh, we come to the section now that we want to deal with for the majority of our lesson, that is Jacob's ladder. Look at verse 10. Now, Jacob went out from Beersheba, and he went toward Haran. So Jacob, we, we, if you've been in this study for very long, you should be very familiar with this map uh, by now. You can see down on the south end is Beersheba. Uh, this is down in the land of Israel. Haran would be up in, uh, I guess, modern-day Turkey or modern-day Iraq. I'm not sure which one. Uh, that's what was called Mesopotamia. It's a city up between the, the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers in what's known as the Fertile Crescent. This is where Abraham's father died, and then Abraham left Haran and came down into Israel. And so that's where Abraham's uh, brother uh, still resides, where um, uh, 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 Rebekah's uncle, Laban, lives. And so this is where he is heading to and where he is, is going. So he begins on his journey. Now... As far as we know, he is completely alone. In fact, not only is he completely alone, he has no servants, he has no uh, flocks, no sheep. In Genesis 32, it tells us this, For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan. So when he leaves, it's just him. I'm sure he's got a little bit of food, he's got his staff, but that's it. He is completely alone. He doesn't have a dowry with him. He doesn't have any. doesn't really have anything, okay? Now, I want you to put yourself in his shoes for just a moment, okay? And try to envision where he is. 
You have just lied to your blind old father and deceived him, right? You've, you've cheated your brother out of his blessing. Your brother hates you. Your, your father probably has never did really like you. Now he probably despises you. Your brother hates your guts so much that he actually wants to, to kill you. And even though you're in the middle age, again, you're 77, you're going to live to 147, so you're, you're roughly in your middle age. You, you've really never been out of your mama's tent. Your idea of an adventure is, is to try out, whip up a new recipe, right? He's a, he's a mama's boy, let's, let's face it, right? And here you are, for the first time, you're being sent off on this 500-mile journey. You're going through dangerous foreign territory to a pagan city, someplace you've never been before. You have no idea what's going to happen to you. Now, your brother, he would be fine, right? Esau would be fine. Esau has spent all kind of nights out in the wild hunting game, but you've never probably camped out in the backyard because that's just not who you are. Here you are. You're out alone. You're on the road. There's no motels. There's nothing. It's just you, right? Now, you're wrestling with this past that you've, that you've got. You've got this uncertain, dangerous future. And let me tell you, it is an ideal time for God to break into your life. That's just how God works. See, God tends to put us in places where it's an ideal time for Him to come in. And this is a perfect time for Him to break into His life. Let's look at verses 11 through 17. So He came to a certain place and He stayed there all night because the sun had set. And He took one of the stones of that place and He put it at His head and He lay down in that place to sleep. And then He dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Okay? Now, God breaks into Jacob's life in kind of an odd way. And that is, he gives him this kind of really strange dream. Now, if you go read the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, God often uses dreams to communicate with people. But let me say this. We need to be very, very, very careful about it putting too much stock in dreams. Okay? Let me say that one more time. We need to be very, very careful about putting too much stock in dreams. Why? Because they're subjective. They're completely subjective. You wake up and you're like, what did that dream mean, right? And then you start running through scenarios and things. I'll give you an example. These are some, these are some interpretations that commentators have given of Jacob's dream. One guy said the latter is the history of mankind with each rung representing different kingdoms. Okay, I, I got no idea where he gets that from, but hey... His, I guess his interpretation is as good as anybody else's. Another uh, a commentator said this, The angels who escort him in the land of Israel cannot leave the land 
So they have to go back up to heaven, and new angels have to come down the ladder to take him out of the land. Once again, I got no idea where he would come up with that, but that's what one commentator said. Another one says the ladder represents spiritual um, elevation or spiritual ascendancy. Okay, that in our lives we can grow spiritually. Um, the fourth guy that I ran across said the angels represent the guardians of the four powers, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, who will try to destroy Jacob or, or Israel throughout the ages. Once again, everybody with me? I saw a, a, a thing that was published, this was years ago, <clears throat> How to Interpret Dreams, and I looked at it, and it was an article, and I thought, well, that's interesting, let me just, you know, I'll go look at it. And what it said is, it basically had a <clears throat> had a boilerplate or a recipe for how to interpret dreams, that if something was red, it meant this. If something was blue, it meant this. If something was hot, it meant this. If something was cold, everybody with me? <clears throat> very, very subjective, so we need to be really, really careful that we that we uh, take them for what they are. So, <clears throat> what is the meaning of this dream? Well, to me, to, to, in, to interpret the dream, you have to ask two questions. Number one, what did it mean to Jacob? Because it was his dream, right? That's number one. What did he get out of it? I think that's the key, because the dream was for him, by the way. It wasn't necessarily for you and I. It was for him. So what did he take from the dream? What, what did it impress upon him? I think that's first and foremost. The other question we always ask, does the Bible tell us anything anywhere else about this dream? Does the Bible interpret the dream? And the, and the answer to that is yes, it does. And we'll get to both of those in the morning. I mean, in a minute. Now, its most basic purpose, I think, was to impress Jacob with the importance of the land. And you can see this in the words spoken both by God and by Jacob. In verse 13, God says, The land on which you lie, I will give to you. Verse 14, God says, Look to the west and the east and the north and the south. Verse 15, I will bring you back to this land. It's all about the land, the land, the land. And Jacob, what did he get out of it? Well, look what Jacob said. Verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this what? Place. How awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So when he woke up, he was like, wow, this place is holy. There's something about this place. He, he got it. That's what it impressed on, on him. Remember, Jacob is about to leave the land, and he's going to be gone for 20 years. You remember when Abraham sent his servant to, uh, to get a wife for Isaac, Abraham would not let Isaac leave the land, would he? Because he was afraid if he left, he'd never come back. Well, here's Jacob, who's the heir of the promise. He's about to leave the land. God wants to make sure that he comes back. Because it, it's very conceivable. He's going to go to, he's going to end up taking at least two wives and two concubines from another land. It's very conceivable that he would be tempted never to come back. And so I think what God is doing here is through the, the means of this dramatic uh, vision, he's impressing on Jacob the significance and the importance of this Land, And I think Jacob got it. Man, this is the gate of heaven. And so throughout the next 20 years, Jacob will never, ever forget this dream. And I think that was his purpose. And in the most plain way possible, that was the purpose, to impress on him the importance of this of the land. Now, there is a second, more profound meaning to this dream or this vision that Jacob had no clue of, of and he shouldn't have. 
It had really at that time it had nothing to do with him per se. See, God is showing Jacob. He has this dream, and there's a ladder, and angels are going up and down the ladder, right? And he's showing him this is the place where heaven and earth meet. This is the place where God comes down to man, and man has access to God. Everybody with me? And Jacob got that. He said, this is the gate of heaven. That's where people from heaven go in and out. This is the gate of heaven, this place right here. He was impressed with that, as he should have been, because that's exactly what God was saying. Now, in the years to come, that would be shown to be true. The land of Israel would become the place where God would reveal himself through the temple and through the sacrificial system and through the prophets. He would reveal himself to man. This is where they would learn about him, what it took to have access to God. It was very true what Jacob got out of that. But there's another story in the New Testament that gives us a different interpretation or a more profound interpretation. And this is the story of Jesus and Nathaniel in John 1. So in John chapter 1, I'll just read it for you, 43 to 51. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. And Philip went and found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Well, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an, in, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Some of your translation says there is no guile. you got to like Nathaniel. What Jesus meant about him is whatever was on his mind came out his mouth. He never tried to deceive anybody. There was never... Whatever was in his mind came right out of his mouth. That's, remember, come find the man Jesus of Nazareth. Anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Right? It just come right out of his mouth. He's not, he doesn't worry what people think about him. He's not trying to, to cater to people. doesn't care. And so Jesus said... Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile or no, or no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then Jesus makes this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. Not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. You see, when, when Jacob had the dream, he rightly focused on the land where the ladder was situated, right? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And that's exactly what he, he should have done. Done, But Jesus draws Nathanael's attention not to the land, but to the ladder itself. You see, Jesus, the Son of Man, is the ladder. It's not the place anymore where the, that, where the ladder stood, which is important. It's the person now who is the ladder. It is Jesus Christ who bridges the gap between heaven and earth, not a, place, not a, not a piece of land. It is through Him that God comes down to man, and it is through Him that we now have access to God. He is the ladder. Truly, truly, you will see angels ascending and descending, not upon the Son of Man. I mean, not upon a ladder, but upon me. I am the way. In fact, He says that John 14, 26, Jesus said to him, I am the way. 
Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven. Nobody accesses God except through me. So this dream ends up having a very profound um, uh, 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 interpretation that we won't learn for, for uh, many uh, centuries later. Okay? But, but Jesus tells us that. So Jacob saw what he needed to see at that moment in his life. But Jesus reveals to Nathaniel that there's much more to Jacob's vision than what Jacob had perceived in, in his day. Now, how does Jacob respond uh, to this? Well, let's look. Now, I need to, before we look at these verses, I need to point out something. Jacob, in some way, has just been born again. Jacob, in some way, has just expressed faith. He, he's just, God has just come into his life, okay? But you got to understand, only a few hours have gone by. He is very immature, right? Just like we were. How many of you have done things after you got saved and and you thought, boy, you look back and think, that was a, why did I even do that, right? Why did I say that? Why did I believe that? Because you were immature. So you respond just like Jacob did in the best way he knew how. So let's look at verses 18 and 19. Then Jacob arose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put at his head. He set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. So the first thing he does, he sets up an altar or a monument or a pillar using the, the stone that he had kind of used for a pillow the night before. And he pours oil on it, which is a way of, of consecrating something to, to God. Then he renames the place to Bethel, which means house of God. And then he makes a vow. And now what I want you to do is look at his vow, verses 18 and 19. or Actually, actually it's verses 20 to 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying... If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going, and if he'll give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, anybody got a problem with that? Right? I mean, when you first look at it, and, and some commentators try to kind of push this aside and see, well, he don't really mean if. Well, he shouldn't have said if, because that's what he said. If you do this, God, and if you do this, God, then you'll be my God, and I'll give you a tenth of all, all that, that I get from, from you. So how do, we, how do we deal with this? Well, again, there's a number of factors in here that show how immature his response was. He doesn't express any awareness of, of, of his sin. By the way, he's not a good guy. Has anybody figured that out yet? He's a deceiver. He's a cheater. He's a supplanter. Not a nice guy. We wouldn't really like him. Probably wouldn't want to hang out with him. But he doesn't express any awareness of this. You know, God, I've done wrong and, and all of this kind of stuff. His focus is not so much on God, but on himself. Lord, if you'll feed me, if you'll clothe me, if you'll keep me safe, it's all about, all about him, what he could get out of the deal. Notice that God's promises to Jacob are all unconditional. God's prom Jacob's promises to God are all conditional. If you'll do this, if you'll do that. But let me tell you, this is who Jacob is. You, you spend your whole life, and I've got this little uh, analogy I put together years ago. You spend your whole life away from God, and, and, I, and to me it's like these ruts that get in your brain. 
how, how you deal with rejection, there's a certain way you deal with it. Might be through, uh, might be through alcohol, might be through whatever, right? You, you deal with these, everybody with me? You just, you got ways of behavior that, that has been uh, rutted into your brain and into your heart for years and years and years and years. And then one day you come to church and you walk down an aisle and give your heart to Jesus. When you stand up, can I tell you the ruts are still there? Everybody with me? They're still there. Now, you, you're, yes, you're a new creation, but the way you think, the way you behave, that doesn't change immediately. They're still there. So Jacob has, has, has met God, but he's still the old Jacob to some extent, right? That He has certain patterns of behavior. And, and his, his patterns of behavior has always been a deal maker, right? I, I'm going to get what's best for me. How do, I, how do I work this situation? He doesn't understand God's grace. So, so it is an immature response, but I want you to watch this. God does not rebuke him. God should have said, Jacob, you got to be kidding me, man. Come on. Get real, son. You don't make a deal with me. But God didn't do that. God didn't do that at all. Instead, God lets it go, and he just graciously deals with Jacob where Jacob is. Now, Jacob is going to learn a profession of faith does not mean a life without trouble. He's got 20 hard years ahead of him. And God is going to spend the next 20 years changing Jacob. He's going to, he's going to put him in some, some difficult situations. He's going to be away from his mother and father. He's going to be away from the, from the gate of heaven, that, that promised land. He's going to deal every day with a man who's more of a deceiver than he is. For, for, for many, many years. And God is going to be chiseling and working and chiseling and forming Jacob and making when he woke up from that dream, he's still Jacob. Everybody with me? But the next 20 years are going to change him into something different. God knows that. So God deals with him where he is. He's going to use all of that to form or conform Jacob to what he wants to do. And by the way, he does the exact same thing for me and you. I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us have tried to make a deal with God? You might have not, you might, I don't remember ever voicing the words, but it was in my heart. God, I'm going to serve you, and God, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything right, and I'm going to be a good father and a good dad, and God, you protect me. You keep all the bad stuff away from me. It was a deal. I, everybody with me? It's kind of a deal I had with God on the inside. I never said it with my mouth, but I just thought, well, if I do this, he's going to do that. I do this, then you do that. We're all the same. Jacob's no different from us. We've kinda, we want to make a deal with, with God, and we've all tried to do it from, from time to time. But the fact is, he doesn't say, what's wrong with you? He just keeps working. He just keeps working with us. He keeps, he keeps teaching us about his unconditional grace. He keeps teaching us that we're to live for his glory and not ourselves. And it takes years, doesn't it? I'm not who I was 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 10 years ago or 5 years ago. We should be growing and maturing. And we look back and think, man, I can't believe I did that or I said that or I felt that. Who, what was wrong with me? And God just patiently keeps working. He just patiently keeps working, conforming us to the image of His Son. You see, this is why I entitled today's lesson, The Seeker. You see, it's not Jacob that's the seeker. It's God who's seeking Jacob. It wasn't us who was out seeking God. It was God who was seeking us. 
See, God found Jacob. Jacob's just sleep out in the, he's just sleeping on a rock out there wondering what's going to happen to me. He's not looking for God. God shows up looking for him. And it's the exact same case for every one of us. Luke 19, 8 and 10 is a story in the New Testament that just really kind of puts this out there or, or, or uh, uh, teaches it to us in a different way. And that's the story of Zacchaeus. We all know that story. Luke 19, 8 through 10, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, a little short man, he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord... Well, let me back up a minute. We know the story, right? Jesus is coming into the town. There's crowds on the street. And Zacchaeus is a little short guy. He can't see over the crowds. So he climbs up a, a sycamore tree so he can see. And Jesus is walking by... And he stops and he looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go to your house today for lunch. Zacchaeus, he was in the right place, right? But it was Jesus who stopped and said, Zacchaeus, you come down. So they go, they go to dinner and they eat. And after lunch is over or whatever the meal, Zacchaeus stood and said to the, to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He's the seeker, not us. He's the seeker. He sought Jacob, he sought me, and if you're a believer, he sought you. And we need to remember that as we go through these stories. Next week, we'll turn to Genesis chapter 29. And... uh, Again, the soap opera will continue. This, this family is uh, it's, it's ridiculous. But anyway, we'll see you next week. Genesis 29, let's pray.